right now on Matter of Fact. We were there as a rural Texas hospital battled to save the lives of neighbors and friends. Mentally, physically, emotionally draining. While fighting to keep the hospital afloat. These people need us. They really, they really do need us. How these caregivers have kept the doors open for the people depending on them. Plus, a faded photograph of Malcolm X, his family, and heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali leads to a question. When you look at that picture, what does it remind you and what, what does it tell you? Hear what the daughter of Malcolm X has to say about fame, friendship, and the fighter who cradled her in his arms. Then, curious about this sound of summer heard every 17 years? We've got the science behind the chorus of cicadas and notes from the overlooked mathematician who figured it all out. Why was history silent when it came to giving him credit? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. With more than half the country vaccinated, restrictions are relaxing and businesses are opening up. But some doors will remain closed for good. That's the case for many rural hospitals, 19 closed last year, surpassing a record that was set in 2019. More closures are expected. About 450 rural hospitals are at risk of closing, and 200 of those are considered to be at high risk. 60 million Americans, one in five, rely on rural hospitals. Texas has seen more closures in recent years than any other state. Last August, our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to the northeast part of the state to visit Titus Regional Medical Center, a hospital struggling to stay afloat. Here's an excerpt from her report. The only ICU within an hour's drive is busy, now experiencing its third surge in COVID cases. She's running fever, she's short of breath. She CEO Terry Scoggin trying to keep his hospital afloat. One of my biggest concerns and fears is under my helm or under my leadership, we will not make it. The hospital, which serves five rural counties, was already struggling financially when COVID hit. Just like that. More than half of the patients at Titus Regional are on Medicare or Medicaid, and nearly a third of the population here is uninsured. What it means is, from a rural perspective, it's hard to survive. 10% of the staff here furloughed or let go early on in anticipation of the millions that would be lost in canceled outpatient and elective procedures. Federal stimulus help, not enough to cover the losses. I'm gonna go up and then straight back. Short on the testing they need, equipment, medication and staff. Other Texas hospitals that helped early on are now maxed out themselves. The staff are stretched and they're very tired and they're working a lot of overtime. We built an intubation cover. Respiratory therapist Lindsay Hutchings devising this homemade tent using a shower curtain to protect doctors when intubating patients. It works well, but she is exhausted. The last few months have been mentally, physically, emotionally draining. Code 19, all clear. Fighting here for survival, not only for their patients, but for a community depending on them. After battling a third surge of COVID-19, cases are now down. So how is the hospital doing? I spoke to Terry Scoggin, the CEO of Titus Regional Medical Center, for an update. So Terry, I know that 
you had a surge and then in May of 2020, and then you had a second surge, and then you had a, a third surge, which I think was right around Halloween, and then lasted until February of this year. What was the impact? Well, across the whole community, it was devastating. We opened a floor in the hospital that had been closed for over seven years. We opened it up to house patients. And then right after Halloween, it became an issue. We had 29 patients at any given time with COVID, and that's a lot. For a rural hospital um, our size, you know, that's over half of what we normally have on a daily basis. We went from having one hospitalist to having three doctors working 24 hours a day um, to take care of our patients. We lost, unfortunately, one of our team members during this. We took care of our own friends, our family, our community. A year ago, you said the funding from the feds, which was super important, wasn't enough. Did you eventually get everything that you needed? It's a little slow sometimes because you're rural. So you're at a little bit slower of getting some of that stuff, but it eventually came. Um, we were able to get the PPE we need. We received 13th million in funding. We made sure every patient, which was 750 plus COVID patients who were staying in our hospital, had all the advanced medicines, all the advanced treatment. If you needed one-on-one -on -one nursing because you were so sick, you got it. We paid for nurses to stay extra nights, extra shifts. We brought people in. So we made the decision to invest the money the federal government gave us to take care of our patients. What's lost when you lose a rural hospital? I know you guys delivered something like just under a thousand babies last year, and you're the only ICU. 45 to 60 miles in every direction um, that we're the only ICU. And with the babies, we're a level two NICU, and they're dependent on us being here. We're critical to the economy. So even though we're 750 employees, we're over a thousand jobs in this community that would be lost if we weren't here. Without federal money, what is the strategy or the formula for remaining viable, for making it all work? Rural healthcare, and us in particular as an independent, is break even business at best. With reimbursements and uninsured so high in our region, that it's very difficult to survive. So we're just getting by. And unfortunately, I have to ask my team to wear many hats. You're asked to do so many things, but you'll never experience the beauty that you're gonna see when you're saving somebody's life or improving somebody's health. So, you know, it's a great thing to be a part of a rural community and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Terry Scoggin is the CEO of Titus Regional Medical Center, which is in Mount Pleasant, Texas. Thank you for talking with me and thanks for the update, we appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. We also want to congratulate our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, who recently earned a Gold Telly Award for her story about rural hospitals. Congrats. Next on Matter of Fact, the daughter of Malcolm X. As the daughter of Malcolm X, they expected something different than what I was. What she says about image versus reality. They were misinformed on who Malcolm X was. And later, our viewfinder lets you travel the Emancipation Trail to discover the history of Juneteenth. Welcome back, everybody. This past week, a biography of Malcolm X won a Pulitzer Prize titled The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. The book was written by the late Les Payne and completed by his daughter, Tamara. Payne was an investigative journalist who spent 30 years researching and writing. He compiled over 100 hours of interviews with people who knew Malcolm X, including siblings and classmates, cellmates and family members. Recently, as part of the Matter of Fact listening tour, I sat down with author, activist, and educator Ilyasa Shabazz to talk about her parents, Malcolm X, 
and Dr. Betty Shabazz and her family's legacy. Ilyasa Shabazz, it's so nice to have you with us. You said this once, and I wanted to ask you about it. A society in which people feel mobilized, centered, and invested with purpose is a society whose citizens can love themselves. Do you see currently an opportunity for people to value those that don't look like themselves, to think of others as, as American as they are? Gosh, well, first, it's such a, an honor to be here with you. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know if we really do love ourselves. Um, my mother made sure that her daughters, her six daughters, learned to love themselves. We learned about the significant contributions that Islam made to the world. We learned about the significant contributions that women made to the world. And we learned about the significant contributions that Africa and the diaspora and indigenous people and first uh, world uh, nations gave to the world. And so there's this true love of self, right? And then seeing um, you as a reflection of me, and so it makes me truly love and respect you. There's a photo. That's a great photo. And it's your mom and your father and, and, um, and Muhammad Ali. Tell me about the relationship between your father and even your mother and your father and, and Muhammad Ali. My father was Muhammad Ali's mentor. He was his um, minister as well. Um, and M Muhammad Ali said, had he never met Malcolm, that his epitaph would have read, here lies the greatest uh, boxer that ever lived. But because he met Malcolm, and because Malcolm was his teacher, that it, it came to um, read so much more. When you look at that picture, what does it remind you of? And what, what does it tell you? When I look at the picture, it just you know, reminds me of family you know, um, the freedom to be human, right? And I'm so happy that Muhammad Ali and my father it got to experience this unconditional love, this unconditional brotherhood and trust. There are times that I look around and I feel like we have written some people off. I see it a lot when you look at poor people or sometimes people of color and our educational system. How do we change that? I think it is, changing somewhat that it would be this generation that would recognize that those in power have misused it and demand change and that they would be willing to roll up their sleeves and do the necessary work. And so I take my hat off to this generation. I would just say, do not stop. Don't get comfortable. Do not stop. Give it your all. Ilyasa, it's so nice to have you. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. It's such a pleasure, really. You can see more stories about identity, including those of comedian Gina Brion, Native American activist Nikki Petrie, and disability advocate Lydia XZ Brown at matteroffact.tv. It's part of our Matter of Fact listening tour to be an American, identity, race, and justice. Coming up on Matter of Fact, one of America's first black intellectuals studied mathematics, astronomy, and cicadas, yet, there's no mention of him in any of the work that's related to this. Why is history silent on his many contributions? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. It happens every couple of decades, every 17 years to be exact. The appearance of a droning chorus of cicadas 
This year, you've heard their shrill tones in the District of Columbia and parts of at least 15 states. Their arrival led us to investigate the science, and that's when we uncovered the story of Benjamin Banneker. Here's our special correspondent, Joey Chen, with a look at his discoveries and the continuing struggle of African-American intellectuals to have their work recognized. It's a history that's been repeated over centuries, just like the cycles of the Brudex cicada, the one that flits and screeches and creeps its way out every 17 years, including this one. A cycle identified nearly 300 years ago by a Maryland scientist, Benjamin Banneker. Thousands of them came and was creeping up the trees and bushes. I then imagined they came to eat and destroy the fruit of the earth and would occasion a famine in the land. He thought that it might have been here to destroy the earth. Uh, actually, it wasn't. He wanted to kill them all at that point. Uh, he wanted to try to get rid of as many as he could. Dr. Janet Barber and her husband, mathematics professor Asima Nkwanta, were the first scholars to publish Banneker's handwritten notes about the cicada, in which he documented the insect cycle. He also began to see that they were pretty merry and, and not dangerous at all. They weren't doing any harm. They were not doing any harm. During the four cicada cycles of his lifetime, Banneker observed the creature doesn't do much in its limited time above ground. Just screech and mate and die. The female lays eggs in tree bark and the nymphs dig their way into the earth to restart the 17-year cycle. As a mathematician, why is this so interesting? Because it's the prime numbers. Prime numbers are numbers that are only divisible by one and that number. And so the primes are just like magical numbers. The other bit of magic, how history made Banneker's work disappear. There's no mention of him in any of the work that's related to this. I was saying to myself and to my wife, why, why isn't he mentioned? He isn't mentioned in, in any of the, the research papers. I think all of us know the reason uh, for that. Well, what is the reason? And the reason for that is because he was African-American, black, not recognized, and overlooked completely. It's not just cicada studies. Barbara points out Banneker's achievements in his almanacs, mathematics, land surveys, and more have largely been forgotten. People don't take the interest in, in acknowledging a black person. And, and, and that, that's just not Banneker. That's even still today in STEM. Their degrees don't save them. Um, their expertise in the field doesn't save them. Getting lots of awards doesn't save them from having these racialized experiences and feelings as though they either don't belong or they have to continually prove themselves to prove that they belong over and over again. An electrical engineer herself, Dr. Ebony McGee is the author of Black, Brown, Bruised, How Racialized STEM Education Stifles Innovation. She points to the lack of diversity in academia, especially for African-American women. Fewer than 2% of tenured faculty across all higher ed. Among engineering programs, the total number of black women tenured faculty is less than 200. Check this out. One can go from having a, getting a bachelor's, master's, PhD in engineering, be employed as a faculty member, be an assistant, associate, full, full professor, and then retire and never see anyone else that looks like them. This is a true story. One which, like the cicada, is now emerging in the national conversation. 
A social media campaign, Black in the Ivory, highlights the struggles of African-American academics to have their work recognized. A concerned scholars Barbara and Naquanta share about their Banneker work. We helped shine a light on that particular document. I hope that we don't become invisible as Benjamin Banneker did. Or just disappear from view for an even longer stretch of history. In Harwood, Maryland, I'm Joey Chen for Matter of Fact. Ahead on Matter of Fact, Americans clash over the removal of Confederate monuments. We cannot have reconciliation without truth. We preview a new documentary asking, why can't we agree on what they mean? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now to a feature we like to call, we're paying attention even if you're too busy. Recently, in Virginia, the Charlottesville City Council voted unanimously to remove the statues of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. The first attempt to remove the Lee statue prompted the deadly Unite the Right rally in August of 2017, and it's not the first time arguments over Confederate statues have turned violent. In 2015, cameras were rolling when death threats stopped the removal of Confederate statues in New Orleans. Here's a clip from C.J. Hunt's film, Neutral Ground. These people who are really bigoted, I bet we could just change their minds. <laughs> why, why do you think that? I don't know, because may I have... Why do you hold that hope out, that illusion? Hunt, a comedy writer turned filmmaker, has traveled the country trying to understand why the losing army in the Civil War holds so much power over so many Americans. His film premieres on PBS on July 5th, and streams free until August 4th at pbs.org. Next, with the stroke of a pen, Juneteenth becomes a national holiday. What does the holiday celebrate? Of course, we'll fill you in on the history. Finally, today, we mark Juneteenth. What does the holiday celebrate? Well, historians say June 19, 1865, was the beginning of freedom for black Texans. Until that day, news of the Emancipation Proclamation, issued two years earlier, hadn't spread across the state. But when Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, he announced that the 250,000 slaves in Texas were free. In today's viewfinder, Houston Chronicle photographer Elizabeth Conley gives us a look at the proposed Emancipation Trail. The 51-mile route from Galveston to Houston connects a series of landmarks that tell the story of freed families migrating to build a better life. Before we go, one other celebration to note, you can't forget Father's Day. We hope that it's a happy one for all you dads and granddads. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I will see you back here next week for Matter of Fact. If you missed our top stories about rural hospitals fighting for survival, our interview with the daughter of Malcolm X about his legacy, how the cicadas led us to a black intellectual forgotten by history, and a look at the Confederacy's hold on America, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.